Welcome to the Chris Wallace Chronicles. All right, you don't know who that is. Okay. He lives in Australia now, but he lived in Hollywood before Australia and New York before Hollywood. You know, the actor, the songwriter. He was at ringside for the first Ali Frazier fight, Liza Minnelli's date one night. He used to smoke weed with Morgan Freeman. Likes to tell stories, like this one. Jim and I boarded a train at Fort Smith, Arkansas, headed for Baltimore, with orders to report for duty at Fort Holabird immediately. Fort Holabird doesn't exist anymore, as an army post. For that matter, the CIC doesn't exist anymore either. But for 17 years, between 1954 and 1971, both were as real as you can get. In 1973, John Dean was jailed there after Watergate. Now I see that it's an industrial park. Okay, we arrived two days before Christmas. The place is empty. It was, for all practical purposes, closed. Nobody knew what to do with us. After they shuffled us around from one office to another, a captain finally authorized leave papers and told us to go home the next day, Christmas Eve. We were to report back at 0800 hours on January 3rd. Back in Ohio, I went to one of the local college hangouts for a beer. Some of my fraternity buddies were there. They asked me how the Army was, and they wanted to know what I was going to be doing. I had that tall guy's words ringing in my ear. Security is our mission. Never discuss anything with anyone who doesn't have the proper clearance and a need to know. But, on the other hand, it was a chance to show off a little. Fuck security. I told him I was going to be a spy. And just as an aside, one of the guys there that night went on to become a Secret Service agent and was with the Kennedys in Dallas. My dad had bought me a used Chevy for graduation that I drove to all the seminaries I visited. You know, back when I was thinking about being a minister. It sat in the garage while I was at Basic, but at Fort Holabird, I could have a car. So when the time came, I drove eight hours back to Maryland. When I got there, the place was buzzing. The guys in the barracks that Jim and I were assigned to were a far cry from the ones at Fort Chaffee. There were 27 of us, all in the same analyst class. I later calculated that there were 48 university degrees among these 27 men. Quite a few of them had law degrees. Several had master's degrees, mostly having to do with finances and economics. There were a couple of journalists. One guy had a Ph.D. in zoology. Jim and I had simple bachelor's degrees. I felt like the class dunce. There were a bunch of guys from New York. The rest were from all over. Iowa, Wisconsin, Alabama, Massachusetts, Tennessee, Ohio, of course. All over. It was immediately clear that this was not going to be your normal, everyday military experience. We had all been drafted and began counting the days we had left in the Army as soon as we got there. Everybody was looking for an angle. Some way to avoid pulling KP or guard duty. Well, actually any duty. Guys in the drum and bugle corps didn't have to pull extra duty. I played the snare drum in a marching band in high school and in the ROTC. So you can be sure my hand went up for that one. One of the guys from New York, who later went on to become an important figure on Wall Street, raised his hand too. When he was asked what he played, he said the bugle. He didn't know one end from the other, but faked his way through by holding it to his lips while he marched, out of step. We had classes all day. One of them we named Clicking with Klecka. Mrs. Klecka taught us how to touch type on what would now be an old-fashioned typewriter. I am forever in her debt. 
The only other class I remember was taught by a guy who thought Joe McCarthy was the second coming. If you don't know this history, Senator Joe McCarthy accused everyone he disagreed with of being at least a communist sympathizer, if not an out-and-out commie. This instructor saw the enemy everywhere, too. He railed on and on, class after class, like a lunatic, which he probably was. How he got that job makes you wonder. But there was one guy who bought it all, hook, line, and sinker, a would-be journalist from Iowa. Nothing would convince him otherwise. You couldn't talk to the guy. He probably thought we were all commies, too. Every Friday, everybody at Fort Hollibird was required to go to the parade grounds. I'm not sure I ever knew why, but there we were. The guys from all the various schools, language schools, agent schools, analyst schools, and probably some I didn't know existed, wandered and strolled and ambled to the parade grounds. While they milled around toward their places, they mooed. It sounded like a cattle roundup every Friday. You cannot imagine a more irreverent group of soldiers than the guys who populated Fort Hollibird. Of course, the Drum and Bugle Corps always attended these Friday get-togethers. They ended with General Prather passing us all, standing in the back of a jeep, returning salutes. Nothing was announced. Nothing else happened. Next Friday, we'd do it again. We usually had weekends free. Washington, D.C. was an hour away by car. It got so I could drive there blindfolded. I'd bunk in at the local chapter of my fraternity at George Washington University. I loved Washington. It was a thrill every time I drove there, seeing the symbols of American democracy. It may have meant so much to me because I was the son of immigrants. I don't know. I decided I'd try to get stationed there when I finished CIC school. The course finished, and we were all assigned to CRF, the Central Records Facility. It's where all, and I mean all, Army records were stored. You have to remember that everything was on a hard copy. Digital was science fiction. So storage meant actual storage. Literally, tons of records in countless filing cabinets were at CRF. The facility itself was a temperature-controlled safe, one entrance and exit, guarded 24-7. Most of our guys were in what was known as the bullpen, perching squillions of files of superfluous information. When anybody found a particularly juicy dossier, it got passed around. I worked as an assistant to the woman who ran the top-secret control office. I had to have a top-secret clearance just to work there. Our permanent assignments began to come through. One of our guys from Queens, Harry, was assigned to the assignment office at Fort Hollibird. That meant he knew who was going where before anyone else did. We had another guy in our class, Leon, who was... How can I say this with some kind of objectivity, without bias? Um, okay. He was the most miserable, duplicitous, conniving, selfish prick any of us had ever come across. He lied. He cheated people out of money. He faked illnesses. Nasty piece of work. It was generally agreed that the worst possible assignment would be to be sent to Korea. Leon used every trick in his arsenal to get assigned to his hometown, New York. Harry made sure he went to Korea. We all cheered. One day, Harry pulled me aside and asked me where I wanted to be assigned. I told him the MDW, the Military District of Washington. He said he'd probably used up his favors getting Leon sent to Korea, but he'd see what he could do. 
I always had it in my mind that I never wanted to be more than a day's drive from Delaware, Ohio. Arkansas had been bad enough. I wanted to stay closer to home. I had to. A few days later, Harry pulled me aside again. You can't tell anyone I told you, but you're going to the Presidio in San Francisco. I can't go there. I can't drive back to Ohio in a day from there. I've got to talk to somebody. Looking back on it, I can see what an idiot I was. I'd be in San Francisco, probably on civilian status, for a little more than a year. But I marched myself up to the assignment office. The lieutenant in charge asked me how he could help me. I went into my song and dance about not wanting to go to San Francisco, that I needed to go to Washington, D.C. He said, well, let's have a look. He went through his lists, found my name, and said, no, you're not going to San Francisco. All right, you're going to Germany. Germany? Yeah, Stuttgart. I didn't want to go to Germany. It was too far from Ohio. What was I going to do in Germany? When I told Jim, he said, good, you can come visit me in Paris. He'd been assigned there, most likely because he was fluent in French. I wasn't consoled. Nobody else in our class went to Germany. Only me. Right before we all departed for points unknown, a bunch of us got together and went into town to the club Piccadilly. It was a strip joint in the roughest part of Baltimore. It was our zoology PhD chicken's idea. He was an interesting guy. He was a couple of years older than the rest of us, balding, and one of the sweetest guys you'll ever meet. He took me on a trek on the Appalachian Trail west of Baltimore. I'd never done any hiking up until then, and I couldn't have gone with a better teacher. For all his sweetness, though, Chicken had a wicked sense of humor. As we sauntered along the trail, he'd stop and pull up some local flora and give me a thumbnail lecture about it. One time he cut into the bulb of what looked like a wildflower and said, This is one of the sweetest things you'll ever taste. Just touch it on your tongue. I did. It felt like 10,000 hot needles. Chicken smiled his angelic smile and walked on. The Club Piccadilly wasn't your average everyday strip club. In fact, you could hardly call it a strip club. The show consisted of a woman coming out from behind a curtain, taking off all her clothes, and walking around the bar stark naked. No G-string, no pasties, no dancing, no feathers, no teasing, just here I am, boys. Princess Ruby was one of the strippers, and she took a shine to chicken. She dropped her dress to the floor and went straight for him, rubbing her nakedness all over him as we sat at the bar. He gave her 50 bucks, and she left a huge red pair of lips on his bald spot. Afterwards, he told us, I always make it a point to patronize the arts. I went on leave back to Ohio, and a week or so later, boarded the USNS Buckner, a troop ship on its way to Bremerhaven. My nautical experience up until then was one sailboat ride on Lake Michigan, a small sailboat, and the rowboat at my uncle's place at Round Lake in Indiana. And, as a kid, I was prone to motion sickness. Many's the time when I'd puke on the floor of the Greyhound bus on the way to Columbus. This was going to be a seven-day voyage on the Atlantic Ocean. Whoopee! We were herded down, and I mean way down, to the bowels of the ship. I'd call them bunks, but that would be generous. These canvas hammocks were piled three high. You can bet your ass that the first guys down there angled for the top ones. Anything else, and you'd have had some guy's ass in your face. I managed to top one and breathed a sigh of relief. 
a stale air sigh of relief. It was suffocating. And this is when everyone was relatively clean. A week of this and you'd want to be shark bait. I couldn't wait to climb up to find real air. I didn't know where I was going, but it was definitely up. I finally got on deck and was relaxing when an announcement came over the PA system. Any enlisted men who can play a musical instrument come to such and such a lounge. I found the lounge and popped my head in the door. Is this where you're looking for musicians? Yeah, what do you play? What do you need? We need a drummer. I play the drums. I'd never sat behind a set of traps in my life, but I figured they didn't have to know that. What I didn't know until that moment was that there were dependents, that's Army Talk for Families, on the USNS Buckner going to join their military loved ones in Germany. Also, a bunch of nurses. If I could keep from puking, this might turn out to be okay. It was July, so the sea was relatively calm. There was a dance every night. It took me a while to get the bass, drum, and hi-hat coordinated, but since I was the only drummer on board, what are they going to do, fire me? I got so I could do a passable job and started to enjoy it. At the dances each night, I discovered something that every drummer in creation knows. Everybody notices you. If you can give it a little flair, even better. Flair, I was capable of. Before long, someone would mosey over to me and ask if I wanted a drink, then come back with a scotch and soda. I was about half lit every night. It was great. All that alcohol must have settled my system because I didn't even think about puking the entire week. It was like being on a cruise ship except for the sleeping accommodations. I got my first German lesson on the USNS Buckner. I'd bought a little book with German phrases and simple vocabulary in it so I could study on the way to Germany. There were two German GIs on the ship that I befriended. When I had a word I needed help pronouncing, I'd ask one of them, and he'd pronounce it for me. This is all going along fine until I came to the word gemütlich. This is an untranslatable expression that means something like the equivalent of sitting warm and cozy in front of a blazing fire with a cup of hot chocolate. I asked one of the German guys one day. He pronounced it, gemütlich. The next day, the other guy pronounced it for me, gemütlich. They were from two different parts of Germany, like Americans from Alabama and Boston. I stopped asking them for help. When we pulled into Bremerhaven, I was on deck, looking at the German longshoremen. They were doing what longshoremen do, except they all looked German. I mean, they looked entirely different from any longshoremen I'd ever seen, in real life or in the movies. They looked German. I thought, you better get used to it. Everybody's going to look German for a while now. And you can't drive back to Ohio from here. Ich bin Chris Wallace.